I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. And as a nonprofit focused on educating and empowering people to get involved in climate action, we rely on the financial support of our listeners. So if you're a regular listener and you value what you get from us, consider a donation that aligns with that value. All you have to do is head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. Even $5 a month goes a long way in helping us deliver on our mission. And if you happen to be short on cash, but you still want to help us out, have your friends subscribe and make sure you rate us on your streaming platform. Absolutely. And if you're looking for an extra podcast to download for your upcoming road trip, we have a fun recommendation for you. When the People Decide is a podcast about how everyday people are shaping democracy and how you can too. The first season was about people who used ballot initiatives to bring issues they care about directly to their fellow voters, often bypassing state legislators who stood in their way. The second season, which is now streaming, looks at cities and towns that are strengthening democracy at the local level. Learn about how the residents of Petaluma, California, won the democracy lottery and how Durham, North Carolina, is turning over a portion of its budget to residents to spend. The podcast is a project of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and is produced by LWC Studios. Yeah, definitely a great podcast worth checking out. So there's been an ongoing debate, some of you may be following it, in the environmental community and in the media about the value of carbon offsets. Some folks will argue that they're actually worsening climate change, while others will claim that they're a critical tool. And while this debate continues, the demand for offsets is only growing. So whether a company is looking for a climate solution, or in the case of our friends at you know Chevron and BP, a PR <laughs> solution, offsets have become increasingly attractive commodity. So in this episode, we're going to be digging into the topic and hopefully giving you a foundation to make your own decision about offsets going forward. But before we dig into offsets, let's talk about this week's reason for hope. Thanks, Jason. The um, U.S. Interior Department has increased the cost of drilling oil on uh, federal lands. And this is a sort of across the board increase, and some of it is quite substantial in a percentage terms. The, the first one, it's a royalty rates. They'll increase from 12.5% to 16.7%. And I was kind of disappointed to find out that the royalty rates were so low. Um, and the fact that these rates haven't changed since the 1920s, <laughs> which is bizarre. But anyway, um, the, wow. the the other thing that will change is that the minimum bid for auctions will go from $2 an acre to $10 an acre. Massive increase there from a percentage perspective. And the other thing that's going to increase quite substantially is um, the bond values. So whenever... A company acquires a right to go and drill oil on land. They have to pay a bond to the federal government um, so that if they walk away from that lease, it can be cleaned up. In the past, for a typical 2,500 acre um, plot, they would pay a bond rate of $10,000, which is frankly a joke. That has now been increased to $150,000, which still in my mind is a joke. <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, so there's about... Three and a half thousand, uh, sorry, three and a half million abandoned gas and oil wells already in the US. So, um, yeah, hopefully going forward, they, they continue to jack these prices, but this is at least a start. 
Yeah, I was I was excited to see it, and uh, I don't know. I think it made my day to see the whining comments from the American Petroleum Institute. <laughs> um, but it, it is pretty crazy when you think about the fact that we have three and a half million of these abandoned, and a lot of them are out there leaking. So it is well past time. And it's to your point, Thomas. It's crazy that they were this low in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so our guest today is Jenny Morgan. Jenny is the market development manager for Tradewater, and in her role, she works with organizations to help achieve climate impact through the purchase of high-quality carbon offsets that reduce fugitive gas emissions. She operates under the belief that our most challenging problems cannot be solved by government and nonprofits alone. They require a collective effort. Prior to joining Tradewater, Jenny worked within the technology and hospitality sectors and has over 15 years of experience in business operations, market development, events, and community engagement. Outside of work, she enjoys spending time with her family and friends, hiking, running, swimming, and planning themed celebrations, which sounds super fun. Indeed. And really love the fact that she believes, like us, that you know solving climate change requires collective effort. So mm-hmm. we're big fans of that, too. Jenny, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll start you off with a question we do all our guests. Uh, When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is that a lot of people are talking about it more and more. People are experiencing climate catastrophes near them, or they have loved ones that are experiencing different forms of, of climate change. And it's no longer a quote unquote, distant issue that's separate from us. It's something that we're all experiencing on a, on a daily basis. And because of that fact, people are turning that narrative into something really positive and looking inward and looking at their communities and seeing if there's ways that they can get more engaged. And I'm seeing that every day. Everyone's trying to figure out ways that they can implement impact with the resources that they have, whether that be time, knowledge, um, sharing, amplification, things like that. So I'm very optimistic because it's trickling outward. We're seeing a lot of people getting engaged and becoming really interested in this issue. It's incredibly interconnected and it will require everyone to participate. And so we're, we're seeing that. Well, it's good to hear. I mean, we feel like we see the same thing on this end. And I think you make a great point, which is this, it's going to take everyone. You know, I think as more people recognize that there's a place, a, you know, place for them to make a difference in you know, a role to play, the better off we're all going to be. Yeah. Well, since we're, we're talking carbon credits and offsets today, for those who might not be super familiar at a basic level, can you kind of explain what they are and, and kind of how they work? Sure. So, A carbon offset is basically a representation of a climate benefit. So someone did something good and it has done X amount of, has X amount of good impact on the environment. So let's say it's helped destroy a hundred tons of a greenhouse gas that then is able to be purchased on the carbon market. So it's basically like, somewhat like a gift card. Let's say that you have a gift card. The okay. the money has already been given to the restaurant that you've received this gift card. Now it represents the money and it represents a value to you, a dinner, a night out. And so that's similar to how the carbon market works. You're, you're now holding a 
token and a representation of a climate benefit. And you can use that in various different ways. You can say, um, my company produces 200 tons of CO2 a day, and I have this token of 100 tons. So now I've cut my emissions, quote unquote, by 50%. And then I can work internally to cut the other 100. So you're basically trying to find ways to make amends for the emissions that we're producing through climate projects that are around the world. I like the analogy of the gift card. That's a good one. So let's talk about kind of, you know, different types of offsets. Can you kind of walk through sort of what's out there? Yeah, there's various types of offsets that represent different climate projects, and they all have different values. So kind of like that gift card analogy, if you have $100 at McDonald's, or if you have $100 at a Michelin star restaurant, those have different values of what they're going to get you. Some are going to be, you're going to get a lot of hamburgers, or you're probably going to owe a little bit more money if you go to that Michelin star restaurant with a $100 gift card. But they all have different environmental impacts associated with them. So you may have a cook stove project, for instance. So you're transitioning someone's cooking appliances that they have in their home to something that's a bit more environmentally friendly. There is an environmental benefit associated to that climate project, but there's also an enormous social impact that's assigned to that climate project. So it's going to improve the health of the individuals that are living in this home. And so everything that's on the market and represents an offset has different variables of social and environmental impact. Um, You could see deforestation as an offset. So you're preventing forest land from being cut down. You could see protection and restoration of wetlands. You could see direct air capture. Um, These are all various types of offsets that are available to be purchased, meaning fund these projects through the carbon market. And they all have um, various pricing based on kind of how, how much it costs to do the work and the market value of those solutions. Right. So wide variety. And, you know, you made me think of something as you're talking about it, which is that, you know, one of the important pieces is this idea that the project that, you know, you're you're buying that gift card from, if you will, wouldn't have sort of occurred had, you know, that money not, you know, flown. In other words, you know, these are things that are acting as an offset because they wouldn't have otherwise, you know, been out there were the money not flowing to them. Correct. So where I work, we destroy refrigerant gases. So once we destroy those refrigerant gases permanently, those credits are then put on the carbon market to be purchased. When that's purchased, the purchaser has then you know funded for future work to occur. Without the carbon market, these projects would not be able to occur nor scale at the rate that they're scaling now. Right. And so you've got all sorts of different flavors. You've got some that, in addition to having a climate benefit, have sort of a social benefit. You probably have some projects that are sort of, you know, in the long term, sort of more ironclad in terms of the benefits they're providing, you know, compared to others. You know, maybe like a forest, for instance, I guess if you're protecting a stretch of forest, there's no guarantee, for instance, that, you know, you don't have a fire or something happens where, you know, you mentioned, you know, destruction of refrigerants, which are, you know, super pollutants. Obviously, once that's done, there's no risk of those going back up into the into the atmosphere. Yes, uh, there's different mechanisms you can use to determine how guaranteed the work is. So similar to 
financial investing, what types of financial stocks and bonds you want to participate in and support would be very similar to the carbon market. Some are a bit more risk averse than others. So like you said, refrigerant gases, once they're destroyed, they're destroyed. The solution is permanent. But then uh, forest, for instance, there are acts of God that could occur that could make your investment null, that climate benefit won't occur because those trees are unable to store carbon because they were burned. So, but they still have a you know, huge climate benefit and we should support nature solutions. But there's kind of a give and take of how you should invest in these solutions so that you're representing a very strong and holistic pursuit to preventing catastrophic climate change. Right. That makes sense. Sort of the same premise with kind of investing, you know, diversifying is good. When, you know, we're talking about carbon offsets, obviously people can purchase them themselves. Who are the main buyers today, right? Are we talking about governments, corporations, individuals? I would say the largest buyers are corporations that are typically associated with the largest amount of pollution. So I have seen that there are a lot of of organizations that are typically associated with being a large polluter that do purchase offsets. And so they're looking to find ways to support solutions out there. But I do see that offsets are purchased by anyone and everyone, all all industries, all uh, nonprofits, governments, individuals. Right. And, th- and that brings up another question, I guess. You know, some argue or there's an argument that carbon offsets can undermine efforts to reduce emissions. I'm wondering if you can kind of explain how that, you know, the root of that argument and, and what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think that the criticism of the carbon market has somewhat of a binary way of thinking when there is criticism, because there's a small percentage of all of us that have been accused of abusing the market. So an oil and gas company may claim carbon neutrality because they've purchased an amount of offsets that have offset their business, but they've done nothing internally to change how they're going to transition to something more environmentally friendly. That one example is now clouding the entire experience of the carbon market. And it's a very blanket statement to say that the carbon market is then a license to pollute. Silvera recently did a study where they monitored 100 different companies across industries for over a decade to see if there was a difference between the 50% that purchased offsets and the 50% that did not. Both decarbonized, but the ones that did purchase offsets decarbonized at two times the rate. So it's actually not a license to pollute. It's a holistic representation of climate action. You work internally, but then there are some things that you cannot fix right now due to resources or the technology just doesn't exist or it will take time. We unfortunately do not have time to waste. And so the carbon market can then fill those gaps. In other words, like anything, you've got some some bad actors and certainly the fossil fuel industry fits that profile. But in general, you it sounds like you were talking about the study and the companies that are, you know, taking the time and investing the resources in, you know, offsets, it turns out are actually those who are more aggressive about reducing their emissions, which is obviously, you know. First and foremost, right? We got to reduce and, and, and offset as well. But 
yeah, progress is inspiring. And so offsets can be a tool to progress forward and be more positively impactful. And so that inspiration and that tactic can be used to then instill more change internally. If you've done a small micro change in your life, but what's that going to lead to next? And offsets are being used like that in industry. It's being used as a catalyst for change. So, you know, we want to make sure that we address the other critique that can be out there for those who are more familiar, which is that in in the past, there have been issues in some cases with, you know, sort of overcounting or double counting of benefits associated with carbon offsets. Can you speak to sort of how widespread the problem is and sort of what's been done or is being done to to address it? Yeah. So the carbon market is built on methodologies and standards that have been developed by the scientific community. Uh, They're also open to public comment as well. And so science is ever changing. I think that methodologies and standards will continue to evolve as we learn. Learning should be something that is celebrated. So we learn from, you know, what we're experiencing and then things continue to improve. I do think that there's also this methodology that's placed to just simply count impact so that it can be quantified. That can open up room for disagreements. So let's take an example of a deforestation project. So you're protecting uh, Forest X, and that's the project that you are then supporting in the carbon market. But then we find out that Forest X there was actually only 10% of that forest that was under threat of of being logged and being cut down. But Forest X was accounted for as its entirety. And so the carbon benefit and the the environmental benefit has been overcounted. That is not occurring as much as the media is stating it is, but it definitely has occurred. That's why additionality is really important to review when you're looking at an offset that you're purchasing. And my heart goes out to nature-based solutions because additionality is very difficult to prove, but it can be proven. You have to prove that you're providing a an additional climate benefit. You can't just point at a tree and say, aha, this tree Climate benefit, you're welcome. It has to be a tree that was actually about to be cut down and then now you've protected it. And so then that can then add to the the benefit, that, the additional benefit that you provided. And I think with the scrutiny that the that offsets are, are getting from the community, we're going to see more and more push to be as close as possible or even undercounting to just potentially remove any sort of accusation that could occur from a project. So it sounds like things have, have matured there. You know, you started out with sort of best available science, if you will. And, and as we've gone along, we've gotten better in terms of the processes used to, to certify or, you know, quantify the benefits. Wondering if you could speak to, and I know some of the stuff can get technical, but what other kind of improvements are being made, you know, as the market matures to ensure robust offsets and kind of now and into the future, knowing that, you know, we're counting on that offset when we buy it to be able to, you know, deliver its value. I think improvements that are being made are efforts for transparency. Um, We can see that 
there will be mandates that are occurring now and in the future to be more transparent in the efforts, the climate efforts that you're you're implementing in your own business and then what the climate projects are that you're supporting. I would also say that the credit rating groups are definitely coming out more and more. And we're seeing that you can get basically score all of the different aspects of a climate project. And I know it might be kind of hard to for people to kind of wrap their head around it, but wondering if you can kind of speak to how quickly the market's growing, right? I mean, carbon offsets maybe weren't a big thing, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now, you know, everybody's talking about carbon offsets. What rate is sort of the market scaling up? I mean, how much work is being done out there? It's a billion dollar industry and an enormous amount of work is being done. Where I work, we've destroyed over 6 million tons of carbon equivalent and we're expected to destroy and prevent 22 million by 2027. And we're just one organization. You see some of those large project developers that are doing projects like this, not only preventing, but also removing. And so I I see it continuing to grow. There's some solutions that require time, like nature-based solutions. So watching, um, you know, you know, ensuring that the trees you've planted actually become mature trees that are storing carbon for the foreseeable future. Direct air capture is interesting. It's, in my opinion, not scalable at this time, uh, but it is continuing to be, you know, improved upon as time goes on and potentially more affordable to support. All of these solutions are gaining an enormous amount of momentum and that holistic pursuit, as I mentioned before, of supporting these various solutions is going to help us not only pull the emergency break of gases that we're emitting today, but then also support the innovation of of removing what's already in the atmosphere now. Right. And I guess that, that makes me think of, you know, maybe an important distinction is that as we're talking about, you know, carbon offset it's kind of that gift card, you know, providing climate benefit, there's different ways, you know, that can be done. So there's direct air capture, which you mentioned, which for folks aren't familiar, right, you're pulling CO2 literally out of the air. You've got these nature-based solutions that are doing the same, um, but then you've got prevention side, right? So you've got these refrigerants that you're talking about that would have otherwise made their way into the atmosphere. And so you're providing benefit by keeping that from happening or methane, you know, capture as well. Yeah, I like to think of climate change like a canoe that's sinking. Um, And so there's some solutions that are plugging the holes at the bottom of the canoe to stop the water from flooding in. And then there's the solutions that are, some are throwing water out with their hands, some are using buckets, some are using teeny tiny straws. And so they all have all of these different ways of trying to just get the boat back to floating. It's another great analogy. So since we're talking, you know, we talked about offsets, different facets, um, you know, for people who are trying to be conscientious, they've worked to sort of reduce their own um, personal footprint. Uh, but, you know, there's still things you do, like you maybe you go to visit family and you, you hop on a plane. What recommendations do you have for someone looking to purchase offsets? What are, you know, sort of the key things to keep in mind? If you're looking to purchase offsets and you want something that's going to have a high guarantee and a high impact, 
I would look out for permanence. So how can you guarantee that the investment you've made will have a permanent impact? Again, difficult to prove with nature-based solutions, but if there's a plan in place to try to protect said action, that's really important. So how is this climate work going to have a permanent environmental impact on the planet? Additionality, like we mentioned earlier, how is this providing an additional benefit? Um, Transparency. So that can be done in many ways. The more traditional way is that the climate project is listed with the various registries that go under a lot of scientific review and are highly respected. Also easy to work with. I think that that's, you know, fun. How accessible is it? How many hoops do you have to jump through to actually support the solution? How open are they to you peeking behind the curtain? And then sharing it. I mean, I would say that how easy is it to share it with others to join you on on this fight? Um, That would be something that I would gravitate towards when I was looking at offsets. That's great. I think those are all helpful. And, you know, encourage everybody who, you know, is looking to address those hard to hard to reduce emissions to, you know, seek out offsets as a, as a potential solution. Well, Jenny, thanks for coming on and educating us more about more about offsets. I definitely feel a little smarter. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the all the work you do out there. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm I love your community. And I'm so excited that there's more and more people getting involved. So I'm an open book if anyone has questions. And I, I really appreciate the conversation. So Flora, Thomas, what did you guys think of the interview with Jenny? Oh, it was so interesting. I did, and this is a little silly, but I think I'm a really visual person. And I did keep finding myself getting a little bit stuck on the idea of all of Tradewater's projects. And, you know, Jenny mentions a kiln, but I feel like when I was thinking about either finding and plugging wells or trying to get rid of hydrofluorocarbons, I just wasn't sure how that would manifest in an actual practical sense. Like, I guess it was hard for me to visualize how exactly that happens. So if either of you wants to speak to that, I think that could be really helpful. Go ahead, Thomas. Yeah. All right. I'll have a crack at that. (laughs) So basically what they're doing is high temperature incineration. So these hydrofluorocarbons are often Mm -hmm. relatively large and complex molecules. And if they can break them down into smaller components, Uh, then often their impact on global warming is less. Gotcha. One, I guess it's worth calling out for folks who may not have heard our refrigerant episode that when we're talking about these refrigerants, they have global warming potential. You know, if carbon dioxide has a global warming potential one, some of these refrigerants can be in the thousands. So one molecule, one of these big molecules, as Thomas said, can make a huge difference. Yeah, and they might not get it all the way down to carbon dioxide at the end, but it will be down into a a gas or some form of a gas that will be in the order of maybe between one and 10 global warming potential. But as Jason said, not the two to 4,000 that they may have been before. Yeah. And I I don't know, Thomas, you might be better equipped to speak to the methane one, but I I don't know what, you know, materials they're using to plug these, these wells. But when the oil companies have walked away from oil and gas, you know, a lot of times you'll have these leaks at these abandoned sites where methane is, you know, silently leaking up into the air. And so, I don't know, maybe we'll have to send Jenny a question and she can she can yeah. send us a, a more detailed write-up. <laughs> I can't speak specifically to 
Jenny's case, but historically, when, when you go and pull hydrocarbons out of the ground, and the focus in the past has always been on oil, right? Because gas has only sort of come along in the last couple of decades, has been a big part of our energy mix. But when you extracted that oil from the ground, there would be lighter hydrocarbons, i.e. hydrocarbon gases that would come off with it. And in the past, they were flared, right? They would light that gas and burn it off because there was no market for it at the time. But now, like what they're mm-hmm. focusing on is like, how do we physically cap these sites, these old leaking wells, you know, pour concrete down them, put steel caps on them, whatever it might be to stop those emissions entirely and trap them underground, trap that methane or propane or whatever it is underground permanently. Oh, interesting. I like to I like to hear that, especially about the cement, because I do think that's what I was visualizing. So, yeah, I, I'm not as familiar with the details as well. But had the federal government had bonds on these oil companies in the first place, they would have had the money yeah. to to cap these and and address the problem. So, as I was listening to Jenny, one of the things that stuck out to me is that, in a way, when we're talking about the problems, the big issue here, in many respects, is the fact that you have companies, especially the oil companies, that are really trying to use this more as a PR stunt. In other words, Mm -hmm. they're going out, buying the offsets and continuing their business the way they always have. And and that's obviously problematic. What these companies need to be doing is reducing their emissions first and then offsetting the balance or, you know, offsetting emissions as they go through reductions. So I think the key, you know, in some respects to reducing some of the bad behavior is ensuring that these companies are making science-based climate targets. And I was looking, the UN actually has some guidance here, and they say that if a company is making a net zero pledge, that 10% or less of that can come from offsets. Yeah. I was reading an article by Bloomberg that speaks a little bit more to some of the different market changes around carbon offsets. And I thought it was really interesting that in 2022, there was a substantial drop um, because of you know bad press, poor regulation, these companies. And you know, now we're seeing that that number is going back up. There is a demand, a large demand for carbon offsets. And it definitely did just make me curious about, you know, what place they're going to have in the future. I mean, do you think, and I think Jenny speaks to this a little bit too, but I, I do wonder, do you guys think that offsets are going to keep occupying a really important role or? I don't know. Maybe Thomas, I'll let you go first on that one. Yeah, look, I, I think that they're always going to have a place when we move to a direct air capture mm-hmm. closed cycle, right? So there are going to be tasks either at very high temperatures or where we need very high energy densities. That's where the direct air capture offsets are going to play a role where they can make synthetic fuel from carbon dioxide combined with hydrogen from electrolysis made from renewable energy. But these other more fuzzy offset programs eventually we we get to the point where we run out of land because it's not a lot of that is not closed loop you've got companies like shell and delta airlines like continuing to suck fossil fuels out of the ground pump it up Mm. in the atmosphere and then say hey we're going to stop this forest getting chopped down and we're going to plant another forest and call it good you know i think it's worth calling out the fact that all these organizations or the vast majority that are pursuing this work are doing it for the right reasons and they're wanting to have an impact. I know most of the bad press has centered around nature-based climate solutions. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, as Jenny talked about, things can get fuzzy a little bit with being able to prove additionality. 
I do still think that it's important to be funneling money into ramping up these nature-based solutions. They're absolutely critical. The The challenge is that you know we have this situation where it's really hard on a project-by-project basis to prove that you know if you save 100 acres that somebody didn't just go down and cut the 100 acres that's next door, right? <laughs> and I actually you know, read a couple interesting pieces, one by the World Resources Institute, where they were advocating for some changes focused on having this at a bigger scale. So in other words, instead of a little project, you'd have a whole country that would say, hey, we're going to we're gonna halt deforestation. And then you're not going to have bad actors that can just move around within the same country. The other thing that when it comes to forest offsets that we probably need to consider is building in some more uncertainty, right? Because fire is going to be a reality out there, especially if we're talking about, you know, forests that aren't on the equator. And, and so it's going to cost a little more, right? These off, some of these offsets are way too cheap. And I think along those lines too, these offset markets aren't used as an excuse to water down or not implement legislation that forces companies, organizations, and individuals to do the right thing. I mean, sometimes I hear it just amongst you know, people I associate with who are like, hey, you know, um, I'd go and plant these trees on my farm, but where, where am I going to get the carbon offset money to plant them? And it's like, well, you probably should be just planting them anyway, right? <laughs> anyway, I just like it, it would <laughs> disappoint me if, if we just didn't utilize this opportunity now to bring tighter legislation in to prevent land clearing and that sort of thing. So I think you're right, Thomas. I think offsets are important in this space where companies need the extra help to get to zero. And I think we know that we need to ramp up all of these activities, whether it's capturing refrigerants and disposing of them, reforesting areas that have been deforested, or you know, even more critically, keeping more land from becoming deforested. So all this work has to occur. Offsets are a way to get money in that direction. But deforestation went up again last year, even though countries have pledged to get to you know zero deforestation by 2030. So we're not on the right trajectory. And I think this is where legislation could play a role. And we've talked about the uh, the Force Act that's you know was introduced in the last Congress and had a little bipartisan support, but Having something like that that you know prevents importing goods from countries that actively have deforestation, that's the real kind of teeth you want because there's economic consequences. So I guess yeah. that leads us to the, always the question of what can we do? And before we get to what we what can we do, I think we're overdue for talking about <laughs> what each of us has done lately to help the climate. Uh-huh. Um, Thomas, you want to kick things off, get us started? Uh, yeah, I guess at a, at a personal level, I've been working on a, a few different things. I, I've been, uh, last couple of weekends, I've been digging a trench um, to lay pipework <laughs> in to get water to the trees I've been planting over the last couple of years. And I hope to put a couple, couple more hundred in this year and this time they'll have water. So even if that El Nino ends up occurring, um, they'll hopefully survive it. And then the other one is, uh, yeah, I've been writing a few letters again. Um, one was to the New South Wales Transport Minister to say, please implement roll-on, roll-off bicycle uh, capacities on future trains in the state. And the other one, I've been trying to help the state opposition here in Tasmania uh, refine their energy uh, strategy so that they focus more on efficiency rather than just trying to make energy cheap for people. Because making energy cheap does nothing to reduce emissions or 
create efficiency in the long term. Anyway, how about you guys? Woo, that was a great list of stuff. I mean, yeah, I don't know if really, I want to go now. I, I know, like- high level. <laughs> Though he did he did start it off by saying he dug a trench, so maybe not too high level, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, Flora, I don't know if you're going to take we we both have shared credit in this one, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. for folks who aren't aware, here in Portland, Oregon, we had our first live event, Climate Optimist did. Yeah, we did some uh nice tour of some local bike infrastructure with the goal of promoting, you know, better infrastructure and in turn more people getting on bikes. I think we had about 30 letters signed to give to the city council here. So yeah, great progress. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, uh, the event was great. The organization Bike Loud, which conducts all these really great biking events in Portland came. Yeah. I thought it was a great first event and, and definitely excited to do more. So Let's get around to what all of you can do that are that are listening to today's podcast. Uh, we have two options we're putting forth. No pressure. Um, <laughs> the first is we'd like you to tell your representative to pass the Forests Act, spelled just like it sounds. And again, that act will help basically prevent commodities coming in from countries where there are issues like deforestation. Yeah. And we've had this one on our call to action list before. So if you have not sent an email yet, this is your time. Great point, Flora. Yes. If you've heard about the Forest Act before, time to send that email, that quick note. Promise it won't take you more than five minutes. And Mm -hmm. you know what? These things do matter. So second option we have is when you are buying offsets, and I believe if you're going to you know, be flying in the world, you really should, make sure that you buy twice what you need and only buy from reputable sources. And, you know, based on our, our interviews today, obviously, you know, Tradewater is a good organization. And as we mentioned, does destruction of refrigerants and plugging methane wells. And you can buy offsets there at their website as an individual. Anything to add, you guys? Oh, or alternatively, cut out the middleman. Um, just make sure that you've done everything you possibly can yourself first um, to mitigate your own carbon emissions, right? So... And, and often, you know, a lot of those things are the gift that keep on giving, right? Get that solar in the house, get those walls insulated, do everything you possibly can to get your personal emissions down. Because when you move out of that house, like those things will continue to improve um, you know, the state of the climate. Yeah, definitely a great reminder, Thomas. You know, we can all act first and, you know, offset what we can, right? It, it, just like companies, it should be the, the piece that you really can't take care of. Well, that's a wrap uh, for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. As a reminder, we're taking a small summer break in August. So our next episode will air on August 29th. Make sure you mark your calendars. And for those of you who want more emails they can look forward to, consider signing up for our monthly newsletter. We keep it short on fluff and heavy on substance. So whether you're looking for some good talking points at your next barbecue or, you know, or good ways to fight climate change, it's a great resource. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.